Before we get started, I want to cover a couple of things. Uh, this is a chance for you to mark your calendars. So March 3rd and 4th, which is a Friday, Saturday uh, deal, we are going to be doing that citywide Disciple Now that we did last year. And there's 16 churches involved. We're calling the D now. It's called The Way. And I want you guys to make sure that you mark out your calendar. Make sure you can be there for that. It's going to be Friday night, all day Saturday. And my good friend, uh, Darren, who did Connect Weekend with us, is going to be the speaker for that as well. Um, so excited about that. And uh, it's just really cool. I met with these youth pastors last Wednesday. It's just really cool to see 16 different churches come together for one event. We're looking to grow it beyond just the 16 churches. It'll be over at UMHB again like it was last year. Uh, mark that down, March 3rd and 4th for um, that weekend event. And then I want to give you a snapshot of what's going to happen on Sunday morning in here after we finish James. So we finish James end of the semester, and then next spring we are going to launch into a 10 or 11 week series on relationships. Now, um, I used to do a series on relationships like about once a year. I would do it when I first became the high school pastor. I did like like every year I'd do like a four week thing on it. It was always in February for some reason, I'm not sure why that was, but it was always that month. I don't know why it was, but um, that's when we chose to do it. And uh, I got kind of burned out on it, honestly, and just thought we were focusing so much on that. And so I didn't do it for several more years. And then I would just kind of hit a few things like in Proverbs or whatever, like here and there. But um, so now what you're, what I have found is that um, there is all this stuff kind of like brimming to the surface that I want to talk about with you guys. And so we're going to do a 10 or 11 week relationship series in January, part of February, even into March. And it's going to be intense. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Um, the title of it, we're, we're going to call this series Vision for the Future. This is not going to be a 10 week um, deal on how to pick up chicks. All right. This is not going to be like a how-to dating manual. It's more of like just a big picture of here's what God has in mind for you when it comes to his ultimate goal, which is marriage. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about dating, but we're going to talk more about what God's intent for marriage is designed for marriage, what that looks like, because I think you've got to start with the end in mind, right? And so we'll cover that um, when the new semester gets here. Looking forward to that with you guys. And uh, for today, though, turn to James chapter 5. Turn to James chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And last week we covered, last week's passage was about how these poor Christians are being exploited by rich unbelievers. And last week's passage was directed towards the rich unbelievers, the oppressors. Now, this week's passage is dealing with the other side of the coin, and that is dealing with the poor believers who are being oppressed by these rich unbelievers. And so picking up in James chapter 5, verses 7, we'll start there. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So again, this is written for these uh, poor Christians that are being oppressed by rich unbelievers. But I want to broaden this out just a bit today. Uh, the bigger message could be, where do you sense injustice happening in your life right now? 
Where do you sense injustice happening in your life? So maybe you're trying to follow Christ, and you're doing things by the book the right way, but you see people around you that are not doing that, and they're getting away with it. Maybe they're even succeeding as a result of their sin, and you're actually failing because of you're trying to live in righteousness. So where do you sense injustice happening in your own life? And also, where do you sense injustice happening out there in the world somewhere? You don't have to look far to see injustice happening out there in the world. I mentioned to you guys a few weeks ago that um, my wife had to testify in a trial about a month ago, and she hears lots of horrible stories in her work as a counselor, and had to testify about a man who did some horrible things to kids. And that man got 40 years in prison. For the rest of his life, he'll be in prison most likely. But he's in his 60s. That means for a long time he got away with it. And there are people that are going to die that will go to their grave and justice will never be served because it will look like they got away with it. And so where do you sense injustice happening out there in the world? As you look around the world, where do you sense injustice happening out there in the world? And do you ever feel like corruption is winning? Do you ever feel like corruption is actually defeating righteousness? And so this is the message of, of this portion of James. And if, if you sense the things I'm talking about, this, this is hopefully going to speak to your heart this morning. Because the first couple of words in verse 7, he says, be patient. So for the person who senses what I just talked about, the encouragement is be patient. He says, be patient as you suffer. But I want to identify a problem this morning that I think we all struggle with. And you and I don't struggle with just being impatient when it comes to suffering, do we? We just struggle with impatience just in general, just in life, don't we? Like, it's not, he's saying be patient here in your suffering, but the problem with you and I is that patience is not a high virtue today. Because we're not even patient when we're not suffering, Right? And in fact, there are times when I will just, like, I'm only, I I turn 40 in January. So does that make me officially, is that old? Is that old? Because I still claim that when you're in your 30s, you can still claim youth. 40, maybe not so much, but I turn 40 in January. And uh, there are times when I'll sit there and think back, just reflect on just how things have changed in my lifetime. And so I'm going to sound like a bitter old man here for a second, but just bear with me on this. Um, Your parents know what I'm talking about, by the way. But let's just think about uh, this. You know, I'm often taken aback at just how things have changed just in one generation. Um, You know, when I was was in high school, I was on a soccer team with my school, and we're at the soccer tournament about two hours away from where I grew up, and we've got to get back from the tournament back home. And so we, of course, rode just a school bus. That's how we got home, right? Just a school bus. We didn't have this on the, on the bus, right? We didn't have this. So we had to just like, like turn to our friend and talk to them. I know it sounds weird, like just have a conversation is how we dealt with boredom. And my friend, though, he was getting a ride home from, with his mom, and she had this big van, like one of those really big conversion-looking vans from back in the day with the carpeted walls on the inside. And, uh, and he says um, he's getting in the van to go home, and he's like, hey, I'm going to watch a couple of movies on the way home. And we're like, what? Movies? 
like inside your vehicle? How does that work? And so he opens the door, and they've got like a VCR and a TV in this sort of decked out old conversion van. And we're all like, that is amazing. How in the world? Like, who would have thought? You know, like, this is amazing. And, and yet, this is back in like the, the mid-90s, right? This is not that long ago, at least in my mind. And, uh, and now, th- these are my children, all right? We have a Suburban. It's got a little flip-down DVD player in the Suburban, which we, we like that. But the moment we get in the car, like we're leaving my in-laws on the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and this is my daughter. We have a two-hour drive back to Temple. My daughter, we're pulling out of their driveway, and she says, can we watch a movie? And we're, we, we try to like hold back and say, like, wait till we get to like, you know, Hillsboro, somewhere like that. We'll just wait a little bit. And my daughter, she screams out, but we're so bored. And I'm thinking, we are 10 yards from the house. We just pulled out of the driveway, and she's playing the boredom card. And my kids do this. We have this rule where we try not to have um, uh, the DVD player going only on road trips. But we allow the DVD player to happen on road trips, like the long road trips, right? And um, we're not the family that will be like, hey, we're going to HEB, put in a movie. Well, that's not us. And I'm not trying to judge your parents, but they're just they're crazy if they do that, right? That's just my opinion. But but listen, we're trying to like let our kids see. Like when I was a kid, when I was a kid in the car, we drove from Virginia to South Carolina. Back then the speed limit was fifty-five miles per hour, right? And we're driving. It took like ten hours to get there. And I was the kind of person where I would get sick if I read in the car. Anybody? Feel me on that one? I can't read in the car. I can't do it. And so I was the kid who I had nothing to do for 10 hours. I would stare at trees. I would fight with my brother. Like we actually, one time we got those travel games, like Travel Connect 4. Those are awesome. Those like saved my life. And then dad slams on the brakes. All the pieces like go under the, under the, the seat in front of me. I can't find them, right? So this was our entertainment as kids, right? How we dealt with boredom. My kids today, it's one thing goes wrong. It's like, I'm bored. I need entertainment. And so we're trying to like teach my kids, like, look, it's okay to be bored once in a while. Like, it's okay to learn just to stare at trees and just to have a conversation. And so we're trying to hard not to go down that road completely. But when you look at just how things have changed, um, Patience is not a virtue today, and if you bring up patience as a topic, you begin to sound like a bitter old man, right? You know, back in my day, we, like that whole thing. And, but we have to admit something, guys. Listen, we have to admit something, that there's got to be something happening in our souls as a result of what's happening in our culture, right? There's got to be something affected in our souls, in our hearts, when we play the boredom card so quickly, entertain me, entertain me, right? I'm bored. And so I think this is changing something about us because with convenience comes impatience. The more we have of convenience, the less patient we become. And 
I think you'd agree with this, that there has never been an invention in history that didn't make something faster and quicker and more convenient. Like, no one's selling things on TV that says, like, hey, this will go slower than ever, right? No one's selling that kind of stuff. It's always quicker, more convenient, more, it's a little easier. And so this is what sells. And so as, as society progresses and things become more convenient and easy, we become more and more impatient. And so I think this is affecting us spiritually. A guy named Matt Chandler says this. He says, persevering God, God-hearted faith requires that we learn patience. I don't know how you and I can not be affected in our faith when we live out things so impatiently. I don't know how we can live life and actually develop God-hearted, persevering faith all the while living with complete impatience with life, with others, and with God. And so if you and I are going to grow into godliness, I think we have to learn patience, not just in the physical realm, but also spiritually as well. And so James here doesn't tell them to be patient. He says to be patient in a certain way. So he gives them this, this picture, this image of what patience looks like. He, he gives the image of a farmer. Now back then, everybody would know what he means when he says be patient like a farmer. Because most people back then were, it's an agrarian culture. And so if you wanted to eat, you had to usually grow your own food possibly. So they would know what that picture means today. I mean, today, not so much. I mean, if he was writing to you, Central Texas, today, he might say, I don't know, be patient like a Longhorn or a Baylor football fan. I don't know, he might say something like that. Maybe. Maybe. But whenever farming analogies are used in the Bible, I just get like a little bit excited because I've told you before that I actually grew up on this farm, right? And I know you're looking at me and you're like, but, but Dave, I mean, how's that possible? I mean, you're so cool now, right? Like, why aren't you wearing overalls right now? Um, but it took a lot of work, all right, to become de-countryfied, okay? But, um, but my grandfather had this real, real deal farm, like a real farm. Not like, like people today will say things like, yeah, yeah, we have a farm. I'm like, oh, really? So what do you have? Like, we have like five horses, and some land. And I'm like, that's not a farm. Right? That's not a farm. We have like 10 cows, longhorns. When the blue bonnets come out, people take pictures. Like, that's not a farm. All right? That's not a farm. Like, if no one's getting milk or steak out of your deal, it's not a farm. Right? Not a farm. So my grandfather had like this real deal farm where he had dairy cows. And he had to... um like actually run these cows through the milk barn twice a day, 100 cows, right? So do the math. This is three hours in the morning, three hours in the evening. In between morning milking and evening milking, he had to go out in the fields and work. He had to work on tractors. He had five tractors. He had to work on tractors. He had to repair equipment. He had to plant. He had to harvest. And if you're around for any length of time, around this kind of person, they had this weird obsession with the weather. I mean, older people are obsessed with the weather too, but that's because of their, their knee joints and stuff. But 
um, he had this obsession with the weather, and he would watch out for the weather. And so watching weather for him was like a New York stockbroker watching the stock market. I mean, it literally had this effect where he had to watch after and see, if, is it going to rain? Is it not going to rain? If there's no rain, means his crops fail. means he has to go buy grain to feed the cows. It's 100, 100 cows. It's expensive. It's a big, big loss. And so he had this rain gauge behind his house. And without fail, if, he, if it would rain just a slight little bit, he would had this habit where he would like go check the rain gauge. He would call our house. I have no idea why. And he would say, yep, it rained three-tenths of an inch. And I'm like, thanks, Grandpa. Click, <laughs> you know. Like this is what he would do. And so just this obsession with the weather um, because his livelihood depends on how much it rains, right? This is money to him. This is lively. This is money. And so there's an aspect of farming where farming feels completely like out of your control. Like you have no control over what happens. It's just, you're just at the mercy of whatever God wants to bring to you. And so it requires patience. It requires patience. And so the encouragement here for James is this is how God wants you and I to live. God wants you and I to live at the mercy of his sovereignty and live patiently, even though life feels out of control. This is his encouragement. Now, according to this passage, what is it that fuels our patience? Look at again, it says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What fuels our patience, you and I, is the coming of Christ, is his coming. And so this doesn't sound like immediately encouraging, does it? It doesn't sound like um, James is trying to address the situation and, and people are saying, well, okay, how long do you have to wait, James? And, and James is like, well, maybe for until you die or until Jesus comes back. One of those two. And so at first it may not sound encouraging. He's encouraging, though, to say establish your hearts for the coming of Jesus is at hand. And so he, he's, he's encouraged them to, to center their life on this one truth. And here's the reality. Like when, you and I, when you and I know the end of something, it makes the trials seem a little bit easier. Not completely easy, but seem a little bit easier. So I make no secret about it. You guys know where my football allegiance lies, right? And uh, so whenever I watch my team play, um, my wife laughs about this, and she's right to laugh about it. It's kind of stupid. But... My team stresses me out, man. Like, when I watch my team, it's like I'm getting all anxious. and like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And when they were really bad a couple years ago, I just had to, like, turn it off. I couldn't even watch it, right? Too much emotion, too much. I'm just like, why do I, why do I care about this stupid little football team so much? Why do I care so much? And so I would just turn it off. But then I wouldn't watch it, but I would kind of look at my phone, like watch the score on the phone, Right? and watch the progression, and it was kind of less emotional for me for some reason. And so I'd watch the phone, and then I might be recording the game, but what I would do is I would see the outcome of the game, and I'd be like, oh, they won. Well, I'm going to go watch it now. I record it, and I'm going to go watch it. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Like, why don't you watch it live? Like, like I can't handle it. I just can't handle it, right? And so what I noticed was that um, whenever I'm, I know the score, I know the outcome of the game, when I'm watching it on DVR, it's like I watch Kirk Cousins throw an interception. It's like, hey, you know what? No big deal. He throws two TDs after this. 
Someone fumbles the ball, no big deal, because they win the game, already know the outcome. And so it makes, of course, watching the game itself, it makes the trials of the game a little bit easier because I know the outcome already. Now, I know that's cheating, right? But when it comes to life, there is this thing that we know the outcome of, and it's this, it's Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Pastor Chase talked this morning in the main service about the hope that we have that Jesus has come. How do we know he's coming? Because he already came one time. He already came one time. He's coming back again. And I know that we, we hear that and we think, you know, yeah, okay, so what's the big deal? Like I say Christ's come back and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that before. Like you know the truth of it. But you got to remember like what James is saying here is to establish your heart around this truth. You center your whole life and your heart around this truth. The, the word established there means, in Greek it says, sterizo, which means to strengthen, to make more firm, to decide firmly. So you decide firmly. I am choosing to establish my entire life on this one truth that Jesus is coming back. He's returning. And because you and I know the outcome, we know the end of the story, it makes the injustice and the corruption and the trials of life that we experience in the here and now just a little bit easier to deal with because we know the end. Why don't you go ahead and do your first three questions at your tables. Go ahead and do questions one to three. Okay, let's look in verse 9. We're going to look at verse 9. I know it's a little bit short on discussion, but we've got to move because I've got a lot to get to and only like 10 minutes to do it. So look at verse 9 here in our passage where James picks up. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So what can happen, I think, with you and I is whenever we experience injustice from outside the church and things are just getting tense and pressure-filled like this these young believers are in, in uh, the audience that James is writing to. What can happen when that pressure begins to increase among believers, even from the outside, is that we begin to turn on each other on the inside of the church. And so here's the picture he's talking about, is that this is, um, they are now turning upon each other as they're under this pressure cooker of, of persecution. And in a sense, I think we can relate to this, because whenever... Whenever you feel the outside pressures of anxiety, you feel overwhelmed, you feel burdened, is that when you typically explode on people? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I can tell you as a parent, whenever life is just closing in on all sides around me or my wife, is when I tend to snap more at the kids, right? You tend to turn on those that are just innocent bystanders because you're feeling the, the, the pressure build up from outside, and... And so um, this is referring back to chapters 3 and 4 when we heard about taming the tongue. We heard about jealousy, selfish ambition. This is what's happening inside this body of believers. And it's partly happening as a result of their response to what's happening from the outside. As they sense pressure from the outside, this corruption looks like it's winning. It, they're being persecuted. 
they're beginning to turn upon each other on the inside of the church. And you and I can take frustration out on other believers as well. And so usually as burdens increase, increases, patience decreases. And so once again, James reminds them here that, that Jesus is coming back. And the picture he uses this time is not just coming back to, you know, take you away and rescue. But he's using the picture of a judge. He says, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So the picture here is of Christ returning back as a judge. And this, I think, serves as a warning shot to the church because I think most of us, we, we see Jesus coming back for his church, which is true. And there is a sense in which he comes to uh, make things right for the people of God. But we forget there's another side of that equation. We forget that if you're someone who's not a believer and you're not a follower of Christ, then Jesus Christ returns as a judge. He returns as a judge. And this is a, a sobering reality for those of us that are believers and also for those that are not believers. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't consider yourself a believer, Jesus Christ offers you complete joy and eternal life in a relationship with Him. But if you say no to that, and you go your own way, then Jesus will give you what you want, which is your own way, your own pathway, but that pathway will lead to destruction. And it will lead to eternal separation from Him in hell. There is a reality called hell. And so Jesus doesn't come just to rescue the Christians, but He actually comes to bring judgment on those who have not chosen to follow after Him with their life. And it's a sobering reality for us as believers and for those that are unbelievers. And if you look at this passage, He's talking about just grumbling and complaining against each other. It seems so small by comparison, doesn't it? But are you, even if you are a believer, are you a divisive person? Are you someone who slanders and gossips? How, how would you gauge your relationships? Are you someone who has long-term, solid friendships? Or are you the person that's just kind of chaotic in your, you're going from this person to this person and turning this person against this person and, and you're just like a human pinball just everywhere. And you're just, you're chaotic. You're divisive. Like no one ever stays friends with you for a long time because you're just, you're just that way. Are you a divisive person? And this, the title of this series has been The Gospel on the Ground. And we, we know from the Bible that one way to gauge our walk with God is by the health of your relationships with other people. If you don't have good, healthy friendships, and it's because you've been divisive and gossiped and slandered other people, then the words are really clear here that God takes that seriously. God takes that very, very seriously. And so how are your relationships, this kind of relational aggression is going to be judged. It's going to be judged. And people throw around the phrase, I mean, one of the most overquoted scriptures is what verse? Matthew 7.1. It's judge not lest ye be judged, right? 
people throw that verse out all the time, like, hey, don't judge me. It's not your right to judge me. And it's like, okay, well, but the reality is God is going to judge. God is going to judge. And so if you're, if you're sitting here and all this talk about patience and suffering, it just all sounds so abstract and unattainable and, you know, up there in the clouds somewhere. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I mean, are, are there some examples of people actually living this way? Well, you're in luck because in the next verse, in verse 10, we see James, he brings up a couple of examples. He says, as an example of suffering, in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patient, patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so you and I need examples. We need people we can look to in the church now, but also in Scripture. And the Bible gives us these examples. So he says, remember the prophets. If you were an Old Testament prophet, Things almost never went well for you. Things almost never ended up going well for you. And so those are some examples of people that suffered um, patiently. Then he brings up uh, Job. Now, if you know the story of Job, Job was a wealthy, righteous man. And he has ten kids. He has, I think, seven sons and three daughters, I believe. And things are going well for him. But then God and Satan have this conversation. So Satan comes to God. And says to God, you know that guy Job, the only reason why he's even following you or obeying you is because you're nice to him, because you bless him. If you take away these blessings from Job, he will stop loving and serving you. And so God allows Job great suffering. God allows Job great suffering, and he loses all ten kids just, just think about that for a minute. Like, I've got two kids. If I lost one, I'd be devastated. You've got siblings. I'm sure if your family lost one, devastation. He has ten kids. He loses all ten of his children. They suffer in an accident and they die. And then he loses his wealth. All of his wealth taken away. He loses reputation. His friends begin to turn on him. He loses his own health. The Scriptures say that his skin from head to toe, he, he began to break out in horrible like skin boils. And his only sense of relief was to take broken pottery and scrape these sores. This is how bad things got for Job. The only thing that he didn't lose was his wife. And she told him to curse God and die. So you can imagine that he would have probably wished she had been taken as well, right? But he lost everything. He lost everything that made his life meaningful, if you think of it from this perspective, earthly perspective. And so I think today when, you hear this often, when people try to be encouraging, I think today, even this is Christians and unbelievers alike, if someone's trying to encourage you, let's say you've had a really, really awful day, and people will often say things like, you know, we'll be encouraged because... You know, just know that someone else always has it worse than you. That is horrible advice. You don't say that because, I mean, think about this. This is how bad this advice is. You say that to someone, all right, but what do you say to that other guy? 
the guy that had a worse day than that person, like, what do you say to that person? I mean, just go down the line. Like, what do you say to each person? Like, well, just know someone always has it worse than you. That's not comforting. I mean, Job is the guy at the end of that line. Like, I can't imagine it being worse than what Job experienced. He lost everything. Or some might say things today like, you know, I know you've lost this and this, but at least you have your work. And that's meaningful. Well, not Job. He lost his income. Or at least you have your family. Well, not Job. He lost most of his family. Or at least, at least you have really close friends that love you and encourage you. Well, not Job. Job's friends turned on him and, and accused him of doing sinful things, and this is why God must have been spiteful to him. Or they'll say things like, well, I know you've lost everything, but at least you have your health. Well, not Job. Job lost that as well. And so Job lost everything. And I want you to see, look at what James says about this. In verse, look back at verse 11 again. The story of Job, James says this about the story of Job. In verse 11, he says, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, when I told you the story of Job just now, and you read that verse, is there not a question that just screams out to you right now? Like, how is the story of Job an example of compassion and mercy. How do you make sense of that? And here's how we can make sense of it, because we know how it ends. Look at the screen, Job 42, 10 to 11. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. So God shows mercy and compassion because we know the end of the story. The people, the readers of James, knew the end of the story of Job. And so we know how it ends. Now this does not mean, listen, this does not mean God's going to fix everything in your life in the here and now. Because look at the passage, it says in Job 42 that these people came to him to comfort him. He was still in a lot of pain. Even though God restored some of these things, he didn't resurrect those dead children. He gave him new ones. But Job is still in a lot of pain. And these friends come and comfort him and grieve with him in the midst of his loss. And so it may not be that God is going to fix everything for you in this life. It might be after this life, though. It might be after this life. And even if he does come and restore things in the way that he did in the here and now with Job, that's just a foretaste anyway, isn't it? That's just a foretaste of what's to come. It's not, that's still not the end. That's still not totally fixing everything. And so I want you to think about this phrase we heard earlier Because much of life is going to be miserable for you and I if you and I do not establish our heart on this one truth that Jesus is coming back. If we don't fix our heart on that truth, you and I are going to be miserable, especially as we encounter this kind of suffering. 
because suffering is a constant of the Christian faith. One writer says this, suffering is not the sign that things have gone wrong, but that they've gone normal. You and I are going to experience some element of suffering. Suffering is not a sign that things are out of whack. It's the things that, yeah, we're, we're still living here. It's a sign that says, yeah, Christ hasn't come back, but he's coming. And so suffering is a sign that things have gone normal. Suffering is a constant, but there is a greater constant that trumps suffering, and it's Jesus. And it's the fact that Jesus is returning that you and I can take comfort in. You know, the great uh, St. Augustine, he was an old guy from in the early church. A great man of God wrote a lot of really amazing works. And he had this image that he would use when it came to suffering. And he said this. He said that when you think of suffering, you've got to think about a stained glass. Because for you and I in, in this life, he said, this life is like having our face pressed up closely against a stained glass window. And all you can see are just like broken shards of glass going in different directions. And you can't quite make sense of it. And it looks like chaos. But when you pull away from a stained glass window, you see the full picture. The whole thing comes into view. And I think you and I have to kind of live with this reality in mind that right now, the life that you and I are currently living, it's like our face is pushed up against a stained glass window. We can't see all that clearly. Everything looks broken. Everything looks like just in chaos and disarray. But eventually, when Christ comes back, that is the pulling away. And you and I will see more clearly the full picture of what God was trying to accomplish in you and me as a result of our suffering. And so the, the full picture comes into view. And so I'm just going to close here real quickly, but I want you to just think about a couple of things here. I want you to be praying for yourself and for all of us here that God, that he will give us the, these foretastes we talk about in the here and now, but we don't want to demand them from him. Pray that he gives those things, that he allows his justice to break in to our world today, but we don't demand that from him. And when he does, it's simply a foretaste of what's to come anyway. I also want you to be thinking about what are the ways God's trying to teach you patience, you and me patience, not just in our physical life, but also in our spiritual life. How does he want you to learn patience? And then lastly, how can you and I more readily establish our heart on the truth that Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to keep his promises? What are the ways we can further establish our heart on that truth? Go ahead and finish with your last few questions at your tables.